Okay, I'm recording. All right, welcome to a documentary podcast. I'm Josh. And I'm Catherine. And we are two filmmakers who like nonfiction stuff. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) We're simple. We just go straight to the point. Yeah, exactly. Straight to the point. Yeah. (laughs) So how have you been? How's Colorado? Uh, Pretty good. Still enduring this blizzard. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Yeah, for for reference for people, uh, when you're like, dang, it's been snowing in Colorado for two weeks. No. (laughs) We record a lot of episodes on one day, so... (laughs) But it works because we watch a lot of stuff, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I talk a lot about a, a lot of old films I've already seen, so. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is important. Exactly. Yeah, um, good film doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter when it was made, really. Yeah, exactly. So today's episode is fun and special mm-hmm. because instead of just talking about one film, we're going to go over each. We're each going to go over three films that influenced us as filmmakers or just fans of documentaries. Yes. Gosh, hopefully we can, this is going to be a long episode. (laughs) Yeah. So kind of the, the setup is we're not picking films that we think are the best films. Yeah. We're just thinking of ones that made an impression on us. Mm -hmm. That maybe made us think about documentaries as cinema. Does that sound right for you too? Um, I think my criteria kind of falls into that realm, but is a bit different. Um, I Some of them I look at as cinema, like one of my picks, but the other ones are ones that I think really altered my perspective as both a person and filmmaker. Um, and so ones that like elicited some sort of response or action after seeing them, whether it was like checking out more of the, the filmmaker's films or using screen grabs as maybe inspiration or just ones that like, really changed yeah how i view the genre itself so some of them i may get a bit of um criticism for picking but i like them so i don't care (laughs) i know i'm gonna pick one from a prolific filmmaker who a lot of people hate so yeah i was looking because i always do a bit of like you know research on the film before so i can remember the correct names and stuff and one of them i picked had a lot of really scathing reviews but that's okay (laughs) what can you do Okay, so cool. before we get into the influential ones, what have you been watching yeah. lately? Just got through part one is the new Michael Jackson documentary, um, Finding Neverland. Or ne- yeah, Neverland. It's tricky because there's a town called Netherland up here. Um, and Wait, Leaving Neverland. Oh, sorry. <laughs> leaving <laughs> Neverland. Because Finding leaving. Neverland is a Johnny uh, Depp movie. <laughs> keep that in. Why not? Leaving that was the one I didn't do all my notes for. Um, I so keep yeah, saying Finding Neverland too, so that's I why I was like, wait. True. Yeah, we're, you're definitely not. You definitely want to leave Nev- Netherland. Ugh. This is going to get really complicated because of the town. Um, yeah, just say it one time. Leaving Neverland. Am I saying? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, um, like Peter Pan. <laughs> so yeah, I just got through um, the first episode. It's, there's two parts. I think it's like four or five hours in total. Um, I was actually at Sundance when it premiered, and man, it caused quite the havoc there. Um, and so I at first didn't want to watch it because I thought, due to the the public's response and the media's response, I thought it was going to be very distasteful, more of like a show. But I have the complete op- I had the complete opposite reaction to it. I thought it was very tastefully done, very subtle, and it's almost like 
you're just there to observe and listen to what these people have to say and make your own judgment. Um, and they don't just talk about the molestation. They talk about the whole history of how this, these families get involved with Michael Jackson. Um, and a lot of it has more to do with like the power of celebrity and what we allow as a society people to get away with if we admire them. Um, so I think it's, I agree with the, also the responses of it's hard to get through. So you need time and just be prepared for that. Um, it does take a little bit to really get started. Um, I took breaks. Yeah. I first was like, I don't need a break. No, after like 45 minutes, I was like, I need a break. Um, but highly recommend it because as much as it could be triggering for some, it really is kind of like putting a magnifying glass at us as humans and what we allow people to get away with. I think as far as a film too, it's a prime example of how to have a sit down interview that feels really honest and Mm -hmm. human. Yes. You really get a feel that you're kind of just like in the room with these guys and I mean, it's kind of heartbreaking. It is, Because you yeah. can tell how much pain it's caused. And if they are lying, which I don't think they are. I don't think they are They're the best all. actors in the world. Because honestly, like, I've never seen something that just feels so, like, it's not even judgmental on their part. It's just <laughs> what happened, how it made them feel, and how to process this trauma yeah. in their lives. And... It's incredibly honest. And also the way that <clears throat> another thing I'll say about it is the way that they incorporated corroborating evidence mm-hmm. with the stories in such a subtle way that you might not even look at it as being evidence. You're just seeing photos from these kids' lives when they're hanging out with Jackson. And you're kind of getting the whole story of like how this all happened. And in a way, it's like it's being evidence without being presented as evidence. Exactly. It doesn't feel like Michael Jackson is on trial with this film. Yeah. It's more of these people. It's almost like a therapy session in a way for these two men to talk about what happened to them. And then, yeah, just bring in, fill in the rest of the story via their family and people who are around them. And I'd say the way the parents acted, it makes it incredibly believable. Yeah. Like, and I, it kind of bothers me that like the main response this film is also getting is, did he do it or did he not do it? Because I don't think that's what the point of the film is, really. No. But, yeah, it's on It's just finally HBO hearing their the... side of the story, which is exactly. nice. Because we yeah. only heard the narrative from the media for years where mm-hmm. everything that Michael Jackson did was so obvious, but no yeah. one wanted to believe it. And we made a and joke still... out of it. Yeah, and still no one wants to believe it. And it's like the amount of photos and letters and, like, physical proof. It's like there's a scene with the rings, like, that is just the most heartbreaking thing ever that just shows how, once again, like, how manipulative he was and just how impressionable these children were. It's, it's, It's the same thing that, like, what happened with, like, Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement and then just other filmmakers, or just people in general, power, regardless of your gender or orientation, whatever, you can do whatever you want if you have enough of it. And I find it really interesting that, like, especially with all the R. Kelly stuff coming out right now, that, like, we're, yes, it's like, at what level of fame are you untouchable? And I think we need to be having more of that conversation. Like, at what level of power can you still 
get away with what you want to because we're still not to that point where we're all being judged on the same scale. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. So kind of keeping in the same vein, uh, I just finished watching the keepers on Netflix. Keepers. And so the keepers is about a nun who gets murdered and these, these older students. So it was in the sixties and it's about these older students of hers uh, from years and years ago. They want to find out what happened because the case was never solved. I'm not going to get a lot into it because I think the journey of this story is also really captivating. Um, so I want to let people have that experience. But uh, needless to say, it kind of goes further, the, the story and just how it unfolds. And it kind of gets into a lot of the same themes as as leaving Neverland is that Mm -hmm. it's a lot about the power and stuff, maybe on a smaller scale, less celebrity, but like within the church yeah, and how the priests uh, at this school where this nun taught abused their power, especially in Baltimore at the time, you know, you kind of get a lot of sense on how corrupt the Catholic church in Baltimore is again, you know, uh, we found out about that with the movie spotlight with, Deliver us from evil. It's just kind of a theme. Um, and it's unfortunate. But this one is kind of one of the most... This one gets really personal because it it follows her sister a lot. It's her old students that just really want to know what happens. And you kind of get a feel for just how much all these people loved this woman. And how upsetting it is that they still haven't found out what happened to her. Jeez. And you said this is a docu-series? Yeah, it's on Netflix. Oh, good. I think I it came out like a year or two ago. And I started it like a year ago, and I got like mm-hmm. halfway through the first episode, and I was kind of like, oh, I'm not in the mood for this. Okay. And then I just kept so putting it those. off and putting it off and putting it yep. off. And <laughs> on then, that watch queue. <laughs> yeah, and then finally I started watching it like maybe last week on Friday, and I watched yeah. all of it in like two days. Whoa. <laughs> it's like six episodes, but... Okay. Yeah, it's really good. Um... Maybe I'll watch that during the blizzard. Yeah, if you like true crime stuff, this one's really well done. Cool. Uh, What else have you been watching? Sweet. So I'm going to make this one brief just since we still have six films to get through. I know, right? Um, Yeah, same here. (laughs) But I went and saw Apollo 11. I really like space. Oh, I want to go see that. I hope you like it. It is. Same thing. This also premiered at Sundance, got rave reviews. um, But I was like, it's obviously coming to theater. So I waited to see it. Yeah. Um, And cinematography wise it is stunning like i was like what like what the heck is going on um, i saw the trailer i was like this is all f- like footage from the time i thought it was like a no so what happened was um it's a really cool story so they somehow found in this vault so they set out to actually make this film beforehand they wanted to just like give a perspective on the mood landing both before during and after so but in their process of trying to find footage the directors um who are... So we all find out that it was Stanley Kubrick who made the film, right? Uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> so the director, um, Todd, Douglas Mill, or Todd Douglas Miller, ended up finding like a vault with like thousands of reels, or hundreds of reels, and like thousands of audio footage of the actual like land- landing and both like inside the offices, um, like 65 millimeter film, like completely preserved. And so that's most of the stuff you're seeing. It's like 
from someone who loves cinematography, just the colors and like the film, it's in, it's just mind blowing. But it definitely falls into the category of an IMAX film. Um, so it it's kind of like Weissman esque for those who've seen Frederick Weissman films. They're really long kind of studies of places and people, no talking heads. It it kind of is within that um, style of filmmaking. Definitely not as good, but just. Being in an IMAX theater, seeing these beautiful shots, like, it's worth your time. It does get a bit repetitive at times. They use some yeah. of the same shots, and you're like, okay, they're sitting, they're waiting, they're waiting. Um, but definitely it's playing go see at it. the indie theater that's by my house called the Dundee, mm. and so I'm excited to go see it. Go see it, yeah. Good? Yeah, so okay. now we're going to get into our top three films that have influenced us not necessarily mm-hmm. our current favorite films not or necessarily best the films. best made films though mine are pretty well made so <laughs> yeah i think they're, they're well made same but in different ways yeah yeah so i want to get into your first one my first one okay yeah. so mine I, I think it's also this is a bit cliche but i think it's also the first documentary i ever saw um like no um, and that was Hoop Dreams, which most people have probably heard of. Um, it's by Steve James, came, came out in 94, and it follows the life of two kids living in inner city Chicago who are sort of struggling to get out and are using basketball as the way to do so. Um, it does have those kind of stereotypical tropes, but I saw it in my first ever like film studies course in grade 10, like one of my favorite film teachers to this day, Miss Thomason. Um, and it really opened my eyes to what documentaries could be. Beforehand, I thought it was all boring for adults, talking head sort of stuff. But this one, especially because the kids were around the same age as I was, like I was very emotionally moved, especially as like a upper class suburban kid, like to know that this is, it was a wake up call. Like this is how other people are living. And like it made me cry. And I, I think as soon as I realized like, oh, a documentary can make me cry, it really started intriguing me into this genre so yeah it's incredibly well made um and i love like um i can never pronounce this words anthological films so ones that really stick with a person for a long period of time so you really get to understand what someone's living through and i think this film does a really good job of that so i've noticed steve james has a new series on stars called America to me. And I know it takes place in like high schools. Um, and I know that being Lou had something to do with it as well. Oh, where cool. he worked on a few episodes, maybe directed a few. Um, I don't have all the details. People, you yeah. go look it up. Um, I'm going to look it up. So maybe we'll talk about it in yeah. the following episodes. I'm yeah. going to start watching it soon or maybe even tonight. Um, yeah. So keep an eye out for that one. Absolutely. I'd say for anyone who's trying to get into documentary, I think it's a good one to watch because it is incredibly accessible, very emotional. Um, one that it's one that can be hard to watch because of emotion, but it's it's easy to follow and has a really kind of gripping narrative to it. So I think it's a good starter doc too for people who are just getting into documentaries. Yeah, and I think Steve James is a. He's kind of like one of those filmmakers that has made so much stuff that a lot of people have probably mm-hmm. just seen or like yeah. come across on like uh, PBS. Yeah, PBS or, or just randomly watched a documentary yeah. on Netflix or mm-hmm. and you don't know his name. 
but he's done a lot of stuff. Uh, he did Abacus, uh, Small Enough to Jail, which is a great film. Um, you can watch it on like Netflix and Amazon Prime and Canopy. Um, he did Life Itself, which was the documentary about Roger Ebert. Oh, yeah. Um, he's, he did a movie called Real Paradise, which I remember watching a long, long time ago. Um, that was also really good. He did a documentary about Prefontaine, The Runner. So he's all over the place. So definitely <laughs> like look up Steve James. He also helped uh, Bing Lu do Minding the Gap uh recently he was a producer on that film being lou like kind of was mentored by steve james on this you uh, can definitely see that in their films yeah absolutely yeah and that would be so, a good pairing if you ever wanted like a really long movie night watch yeah. the two of those watch your yeah. dreams and watch uh um minding, minding the, gap the gap and yeah. just kind of see the you know steve james influence like from mm-hmm. his own film like when he was younger to to helping younger filmmakers now kind of like make stories about yeah people just regular people that's what i like and i think i'm drawn to though also films of that time or like of that age when you're in high school and changing so much and discovering your identity and also when your dreams start this sounds terrible but dreams start to die or you understand like get more grips with reality um and so this film really (laughs) deals with that as well yeah so so, your film. What's your first, fav- well, not favorite, influential film? So, this is my, this is one of those films where, like, although people's opinions of this person have kind of, like, shifted over the years, um, I still love his films, so whatever. But at the time, so I'm, I'm going to talk about Michael Moore. <laughs> Bull- Shocking Michael Moore. Right. So I'm going to talk about Bowling for Columbine. Originally, I was going to talk about Roger and Me, but I yes. saw Roger and Me way after Bowling for Columbine. And it had a certain influence on me. But Bowling for Columbine by Michael Moore. I was living in Colorado. I was in high school. And just seeing this film, it shaped so much of me. Like I never sat down and watched a documentary with friends. Mm -hmm. We rented it at blockbuster. We were all curious about watching it. We watched it in Littleton, you know, so my friend went to Littleton high school, which was not Columbine, but it was the school, you know, pretty close. This was way after Columbine happened, obviously, because we were watching the film, like right when it came out at blockbuster or whatever. But I just remember like that being the first documentary that we, went to somebody's house. We all like sat down and watched this film together and it had an intense impact on me, not only because of the story, but also just as somebody who never really watched documentaries or cared about Mm -hmm. reading nonfiction or learning anything (laughs) per se, (laughs) just for fun, you know? Um, Well, there's definitely a stigma against nonfiction. Yeah. So that was kind of the first film that I sat down and watched and and that was like a documentary that I was like, oh, this is like a really intense, interesting film. And and even rewatching it today, I'm just shocked at how well made it is. Mm-hmm. Although certain things about it, I don't really appreciate in films these days. I don't really like it when filmmakers are in the film and yeah, 
and like do their gimmick and but for me that was a really good way of being introduced to the form you know like mm-hmm. f- to have a connection with the filmmaker and realizing yeah. oh this is the guy making the film he's also in it he's funny you know i at the time was like a christian republican kid you know and i'm sitting here watching this film and i'm just kind of like you know shocked i'm having my world like shaken you know by a lot of these insights and and even if you go back and watch it like i think if you watch it without the stigma of michael moore you realize how much him as a filmmaker he has a point of view it is biased sure but a lot of it is him just really asking questions Mm -hmm. and actually trying to find the answer he doesn't really give many answers. He's asking a lot of questions. That is true. I never thought about that. Like, cause he's yeah. so physically present in his films yeah. that you, it's hard to not be aware of the bias, but yeah, it's, he's almost always asking questions. There was a whole stream of documentaries around that time that were breaking through to the mainstream. Yeah. Um, and so there was like, Michael Moore obviously had Bowling for Columbine. He had Fahrenheit 9-11. He mm-hmm. had Sicko. I saw all those. I didn't see Bowling for Columbine in theaters, but I've seen every Michael Moore movie in theaters since uh, Fahrenheit 9-11. And, um, and that kind of spurred, like, Morgan Spurlock doing Super Size Me, mm-hmm. uh, Inconvenient Truth. Like, there was all these documentaries that were, like, making a lot of money, but also, like making a huge like having a huge impact yeah having a statement that made people actually make changes yeah exactly and yeah and so a lot of those films were kind of the my first introduction to documentaries Mm -hmm. uh before i ever got into like uh you know the other films i'm gonna follow up (laughs) with because those were the first you know, that era. That, and I think your your sort of experience and reaction to that is kind of mine with Hoop Dreams. It was like, oh, whoa. Like, yeah. this is something interesting. It's having, it's changing your perspective as a person, not just on film, but, like, who you are, too. Yeah. It's like a, almost like a wake-up call in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. So what's your yeah. second one? So my second one, this now is more of, like, a filmmaker perspective. Um, so it's camera person by Mm. Kirsten Johnson, which came out in 2016. She has like a career I would love to emulate, even if it's just a fraction of it. So the background is she is a primarily a documentary cinematographer who travels the world, does incredibly hard pieces, very traumatic stuff um, in the film. And she shot some Michael Moore stuff. (laughs) She shot Michael Moore. She shot um, Citizen Four, um, a lot of her stuff. Middle East, Africa, different sort of um, conflicts. But the film is sort of a personal expose journal entry of a way. Um, Look at her her work. And she also deals a lot with her mother's Alzheimer's. And I think it's a very long film that is disjointed, but then somehow still seamless. So it just kind of like pieces together all this footage, doesn't tell you why. I believe there's no voiceover, because I haven't seen it in like a year or so. No, there's not. Um, no, some titles to maybe give you the date 
in like location, mm-hmm. but that's about it. And like, it she really, doesn't even name the films. Like no, she, yeah, she'll tell you where, but yeah, she doesn't name the films. Um, and I, I kind of view it as like a bunch of fragmented memories put together. Yeah. Um, and I, I love memory, and I think the way it's structured kind of mimics how we look back on the past and how we explore the past in a way. So as much as sometimes you're sitting and watching, you're like, why is it happening? What's going on? Like, why am I? There's parts where you'll be like, why am I watching this? <laughs> it's that's kind of how we look at our lives in a way, too, of like when we look back, we can't see it like perfectly or very well structured. It's like, why is this popping up at this time in my head? Um, and when I was reading about it, someone I think the Guardian or someone said something really interesting that because she's also really dealing with her mother's Alzheimer's and. I think there's a fear that she's going to get it as well, that the film is structured almost like Alzheimer people who are suffering from that, their memory, because it's not a clear one as well. Um, like, it's but in, like it's in pieces. It's in pieces, almost like how she's worried that she's going to become. Um, and it's just a great way to look. Also, as like a woman, seeing a, another woman filmmaker who has done all these things and has shot these beautiful places and can show all of her work it's incredibly inspiring um so yeah. I, I loved that film so it took me a while to see it but when i finally watched it i was just like i had that same experience where i was like oh i don't know about this because i think <laughs> i actually started it once and i was like i'm not in the mood for this oh it's an easy film that you start and don't finish you need to yeah yeah and then i went back and then actually because i knew I, ha- I needed to have time to sit with it mm-hmm. and then once i actually sat with it i turned my phone off i yeah I've been doing all these things to kind of be able to live in films a little more. So yeah. I've been turning my phone off and I'll like close my computer, put it away. Yeah. And then I'll like close my blinds and I'll pretend I'm in a movie theater or whatever. Uh-huh. And, and I just sat with this film and I just, uh, yeah, it didn't feel long to me and it didn't feel like it felt disjointed, but in a way of how you think about your life. Exactly. Yeah. And it fits to, for some reason it fits together so well at the, like, as much as it jumps around, fragmented or whatever, it somehow when by the end, like you just you know the sound. She's like you feel something. Like it feels complete yeah, in totally. a way. Yeah, by the end, you kind of understand mm-hmm. what you just watched. Yeah, and it's interesting too, as a documentary filmmaker, that because she's you know shoots stuff that I'm hoping to one day be working on, but being that close to such traumatic and very volatile situations ha- like takes a toll on you. And I also think if this was a way for her to sort of deal with that in a way, because there's always that line you cross with subjects, like how involved, how close are you going to get? And I can't imagine you. And then you like, once you're done filming, you can't just walk away. Like those things you saw and those people you met and experienced stick with you. So I don't want to claim that she has PTSD, but like some of the things she's experienced, like, that could this film felt also like a way of working through that yeah i feel you there yeah yeah great film definitely everyone needs definitely to watch it yes absolutely but and be ready on, and they have yeah. a criterion version which is oh. really beautifully done and like yeah i think that's what i saw yeah nice cool what's your second pick so my second pick is gonna be so this kind of started me in the more ex. Explorational like phase of 
discovering documentaries. Uh, mm. Like it still didn't really like solidify my style, but there are certain things that I take away from his style, but it's Werner Herzog. Okay. And it's Grizzly Man. Oh, that's actually my favorite of his. Yeah, which I think is just so beautifully put together. The it, It's disarmingly funny in a lot of ways. Uh, it's heartbreaking. And the, the thing that I really take away from his style is just letting the camera linger. Because you get yeah. these like really strange and sometimes beautiful and sometimes heartbreaking moments when the person isn't talking. I think one of the biggest mistakes that documentary filmmakers or narrative filmmakers make is taking the camera off the subject of the shot too quickly. Not necessarily just faces, but even like, even if you have like a beautiful shot of a tree with wind in it, you know, I think (laughs) like learning how to sit with that for a little bit longer is like, to me, I think beneficial for what I appreciate in a film i like to feel like i'm living on something rather than Mm -hmm. being assaulted with cuts yeah you need time to react and sort of and i think that whenever he is interviewing someone and he they stop talking Mm -hmm. you realize how it kind of really shows you the structure of documentary a little more like that it's not just somebody talking for an hour and a half. There's a lot of starts. There's a lot of stops. Mm -hmm. There's people thinking about what they're going to be saying. Sometimes people just completely shut off after they said what they said. And they just have like this blank face and you're just like, it's crazy. Like how much people's body language is changed. Like once they know they're being interviewed or not. And like what that says, like it's so simple, but it's basically the idea of like showing and not telling. And like, we can as humans read body cues and like so well that yeah i never thought about that about his interviews but yeah it's quite it's quite true yeah yeah and he does this thing too where he is fine with putting himself in the film and judging the people in the film <laughs> See, which that's, sometimes that's is, where, ooh, which sometimes that's... like is not something that i necessarily do with my films now but at the time being kind of really stunned by that that's probably the one reason why everyone expect because I love this will go into my last pick like outdoor films and stuff that deals with the environment but so people assume I love his stuff but it's because he puts himself so into the films and almost he comes across like he is the god of his films I can't watch a lot of his stuff yeah I can see that I totally yeah but I just remember seeing that and taking away the just how revolutionarily Mm -hmm. Or just how idiosyncratically different his films are than everybody else. Yeah, and they Which are consistent. Can be good yeah. or bad, I don't know. Um, no, I, I definitely think they're well made and consistent. Like, and I think Grizzly Man also is my favorite because it's the one where he seems the most removed. I've always I've watched probably more like mockumentaries on him than I've actually seen his yeah. films. But I think it also comes down to people either love Vin Vendors or Herzog, and I am like obsessed with Vendors, so that's sort of my. I love Vendors too. So and it was hard too. not picking one of his films for my list, and I didn't. But I know there were certain be... films I really wanted to pick, and yeah. I actually kind of wanted to leave Grizzly Man off because I just uh-huh. assumed that that. You it's know. too cliche. Yeah, it's cliche. Everybody has who seen, cares? Everyone has seen it. Everybody's seen Michael Moore. Yeah. And, you know, whenever you're doing these things, you kind of want to, like, pick the obscure film 
Which is why no. I, I almost went with Roger and me, but I just have to be honest. So like Grizzly. That's what to say. Like we want an honest and like truthful podcast here. Yeah. So like it, this is what it is. Yeah, and I'm not posturing. Grizzly Man was just one of those movies that yeah. was like shockingly different to me and changed my mm-hmm. it was another one of those films that changed my idea of how documentaries are yeah. made. And the thing I like about the judgments and the thing I like about the lingering stuff is I think it really tells you that like there's no such thing as objectivity when you're making a film because mm-hmm. you have so many ways to manipulate a film editing. Yep. And it's funny because like those little moments where he lets the camera linger are so truthful. And then, uh, but his voiceovers are just so judgmental. It's like competing styles. Yeah. It's a really cool conflict in his films. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, uh, what's, your, what's your third one? Okay, so my third one is the one that is probably the least cinematic, but I love it. It's called 180 Degrees South by Chris Malloy from 2010. Have you seen it? Yeah, I love that movie. I love Okay, good. Um, so I am, like, obsessed with outdoor films just because that's, like, a big part of my life. And this was the one of the first ones I saw that, like, made me realize outdoor films could be more than just, like, a sick line down a mountain. Um, and so it follows... Um, sort of adventures Jeff Johnson as he retraces um, a journey that was done by his heroes, Yvonne Chouinard. He's the founder of Patagonia um, and Dog Tompkins. And so he basically sails, climbs, um, does some mountaineering, surfing between California and Patagonia. Um, it's beautifully shot, great soundtrack. And as someone who loves the idea of sort of like humans exploring and adventuring, um, this is one that like really like impressed and inspired me and I think also when you watch a film and where and with whom really has an impact as well so like I remember watching this in college with like a really great group of friends and who were very like-minded in how they lived and after watching it we literally like turned it off and we're like okay where are we going now and decided to like go on a road trip to Vancouver (laughs) Island because it had that much of an impact it was like you know, you watch it and you're like, I want to be one of those people. I want to be living life. I want to be, you know, we went out and went surfing. And it was just like, for a film to sort of make you do something, like physically actually do something, I think it has to be well made. And so it's always my like go-to of like, if I want to be inspired or escape and I can't go outside, it's usually the film I'll like go and watch. So Nice. I have a film yeah. like that too. Yeah. So. And it's just, it brings back so many good memories of like, not just memories of watching the film, but like the people I was watching it with and like stuff I did with those people. Um, cause we now live in different places. So, yeah, I think that's like a powerful yeah. thing that is underrated about like outdoor mm-hmm. documentaries or sports documentaries. Uh, just like being a runner or something like yeah. <clears throat> anytime I'm not feeling like running or, or like as a cyclist, anytime I'm not feeling like going out on the bike, there are certain films that I'll just like turn on that I can just go live in that a little bit. And then yeah. and then sometimes I can't even make it through because I'm like, okay, I'm going to go, go You want to go, yeah, you yeah. want to go do something. And there's something that I love. And I think outdoor, until like Free Solo came out this year, outdoor films weren't getting enough respect. Um, and you can watch, a lot of them you can still watch without being a skier, surfer, snowboarder, climber because they have to deal with like, at the core of most of them is people confronting an obstacle. Like it's really simple. Yeah. And then them accomplishing it in a beautiful place and no matter who you are like watching it it inspires you like I always send these to my mom to watch and she's not the most outdoorsy person but she loves them like she's obsessed with free solo right now it's 
it's really cool just seeing once again like the power of humans and also they're just having fun all right so my last one okay your last one is gonna be a film i went and saw at the denver public library Ooh. and it is the first like it's not the first like verte film i saw but it was like the first one that i kind of learned yeah. about what that meant and what it meant to make like an observational documentary that you know it's a Maisel brothers film um mm-hmm. There's no narration, there's no interviews, and you're just literally following Bible salesmen around as they try to sell Bibles, but it's called yeah. Salesman. Uh-huh. And <clears throat> I don't know if I have too much to say about it <clears throat> right now, because it's a little hard to find, and um, and I don't own it, um, so I haven't actually seen it in a really long time, but I think about it a lot, because mm-hmm. I remember thinking about how much they did with just following these like normal dudes around in the 60s and just while they were trying to do their work and sell bibles and just the people they came across and and it's just another one of those films that reminds you that everyone has a story and everybody's stories deserve to be told mm-hmm. and the Maisel brothers were great at doing that um you know with uh with gray gardens or yeah iris later on in life or you know that one just, is incredible they're just so great at just like capturing moments capturing the atmosphere atmosphere yeah it's like it's yeah. not even necessarily about the faces or anything it's just about like the mood and the and what's going on at the time yeah feeling like you're living with these people mm-hmm. and like i don't know if salesman was their most successful film but it's like the it had a huge impression on me yeah. And I remember after seeing that, kind of like looking out that style of film and discovering like Jesus Camp or mm-hmm. Hale County this morning, this oh. evening, just like yep. films that like live in a place and just follow like people around that get extraordinary mm-hmm. stories from people that might just be considered ordinary. Um, and those are just films that, that right now at this point in my life, those are the kind of films mm-hmm. I want to make. Those are the kind of stories I want to tell. Same. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. yeah. Do we want to, do you think we have time for like honorable mentions? Because compiling this list was incredibly hard. Cause I maybe would just say, some like, cause I would say oh, like sorry. Jesus camp, Detropia, yeah. uh, camera person is one of mine for sure. Mm-hmm. It's like, it recently had a huge impact on me. I mean, just so much stuff. I know and, there's oh, so much. Yeah. Devil and Daniel Johnston was a huge one for me, like a music film that uh-huh. I like. Another one that I wanted to put on my top was Chantal Ackerman's South. Oh God, which yeah. is having a huge influence on like the film that I'm going to make. God, it's yeah, it's it's hard. So for me, yeah, like when you were talking about the Verite films, it was hard. Not really. I guess Camera Person technically eh, kind. No, not really is one, but like ones like Ex Libris by um, Weissman. Um, Sweetgrass, like that entire like the sensory ethnography lab films, which are just oh, yeah. cool in their good. own. I forgot and about that movie. I know. And then um, Vernon, Florida, which is I think my favorite Errol mm-hmm. Morris film. Um, his stuff, his camera work is just incredible, and in how he really makes you feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, oh, so another one um, I'd have to say is Food Inc. Even though we gave it a hard time because Same. as a, <laughs> yeah, as a very impressionable 15-year-old and also as a vegetarian for over 10 years, like that was one of my reasons after seeing it. Um, 
And yeah, did I have I said Tokyo Ga yet? Because it's <laughs> the documentary that deals with like my two favorite filmmakers. Like, Min Benders makes a documentary on Ozu. Like, that's mm-hmm. just on paper or something. Well, that does it for another yeah. episode of a documentary podcast. Find us on Instagram at a documentary podcast. And on our web- website, um, a documentarypodcast.com. Follow me on Instagram at Joshua Lavior. And me at Catherine Sullivan at CMS Moments. And then the music is by Timothy DeCans. And we'll see you in a couple weeks. Yeah. And let us know if there's anything you want us to watch or if you're keen on hearing about um, our favorite filmmakers. All right. Bye.